The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. Good morning. This is God's Word, 1 Corinthians 9, 19-27. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews, and to those under the law I became as one under the law, though not, my, not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's pray before we begin. Father, let your word guide us in our growth as we sit under its authority in this preaching. For the saints among the listeners, Lord, grant that they might grow in maturity and wisdom in following you. Let them grow in boldness and jealousy for your glory and honor among all the nations. And Lord, for those that are not born again who are listening, let the preaching of your word bring truth to bear on their souls that you might, through this preaching, unstop dead ears and open blind eyes and bring dead hearts to life. Be glorified through your word now. Amen. Well, just over a week from now will be the 15-year anniversary from when I graduated college and uh, began working. My first job was at a place called Minnesota Teen Challenge. Uh, I went to Teen Challenge right out of college and worked there as a program staff. Program staff supervised all activities at this residential drug and alcohol rehab facility. I coached the softball team. I ate lunch and dinner with the residents. I went to chapel with them. And on Sundays, as we traveled around the state of Minnesota to to different churches, I even got to drive the coach bus and sing in the choir. Now, inside the program were those that were struggling with addictions of every magnitude and type. You name the drug or substance, and someone was familiar with addiction to it. Many, if not all in the program, had seen once productive and useful lives become ravaged by addiction to these sinful habits. Families torn apart, life savings lost, careers abandoned, all in the pursuit of the next high and the next buzz. 
And one of the most crisp memories that I have of my time at Teen Challenge was one evening when I had a confrontation with one of the residents. He was a young man. He had something like 25 plus years of prison time hanging over his head if he didn't complete this year-long inpatient program. I had to address some behavior that was not allowed in the program. And when I tried to talk through it with him and get to some hard issues, his response to me was this, look at you. What do you know about my struggle? You haven't even ever done drugs. You lived this goody two-shoes life. What would you know about anything I'm struggling with? And he stormed off. <sighs> Feeling pretty insecure and worked over in that moment, I had no response, and I just sort of hung my head. After all, he was right. I had never touched an illicit drug. I had hardly even tasted alcohol. I'd never been to prison. What did I have to teach him about straightening his life out? Well, that's when David walked up to me. David was a 56-year-old resident who witnessed this whole exchange. And he looked at me and he said, Paul, you have a lot to teach us. But most of us have messed our lives up for the next buzz. We've filled our lives with foolish decisions and addictions. We need to hear from you. We need to know how to live well and avoid the things that have gotten us here. Don't stop speaking to us. You have a lot to teach us. <laughs> now what my 22-year-old self struggled with in that moment was instantly corrected by a 56-year-old manipulative, alcoholic, prescription drug, addicted resident. And he was starting to get it. He was seeing change in his life, and he understood that he needed help, and he needed correction, and he needed direction. Now, what I didn't understand about what I had to offer the residents at Teen Challenge, the Apostle Paul did understand in his relationship with the Corinthians. The Corinthians needed to learn from Paul's example, and that's what we see in our text today. Paul's answer to the Corinthians' inquiry about what to do with their liberty and freedom in Christ is found in this section of chapters 8, 9, and 10. Paul argues, that earlier, Paul argues earlier that a Christian is motivated by love for their brother or sister in Christ, keeping in mind especially the weak brother or sister in chapter 8. Liberty and loving one another is to determine all our interactions in the family of Christ. Now in chapter 9, Paul illustrates in a couple different ways what he's done with his freedom in Christ. Paul expands on what the right use of Christian freedom looks like. The title of our sermon today is What's Our Freedom For? The main point of our text today and Paul's answer to that question is that the right use of Christian freedom looks like faithfulness and evangelism, motivated by the gospel's saving work in our neighbors' lives and in our own lives. Our text starts with the example of Paul's faithful evangelism in verses 19 through 22. Tom Schreiner in his commentary on 1 Corinthians says this, Paul voluntarily sacrifices his freedom to make himself a slave to everyone. 
Verse 19 says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win more of them. Paul does not think that the main point of his freedom is for his own libertarian use. He recognizes that his freedom has been provided so that he might be useful to God. Now Paul details what making himself a slave to all looks like. To win more of them, what did Paul do? He became like them. Verse 20 starts, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews, and to those being under the law I became as one under the law, though not being under the law myself, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak, and I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. Now, to the Jews, Paul says that he became like a Jew. Similar to the Jews, but listed separately, are those under the law. Now, this would have been those who weren't Jewish by ethnicity or heritage, but had converted or been proselytized into Judaism. Now, Paul didn't do this. He didn't become like a Jew and those under the law because it meant that salvation was through the law. He did it because it opened doors for him to preach the gospel. Remember, Acts chapter 16, that Paul had Timothy circumcised. That's shocking to a guy. Now, why did Paul do this? Timothy was tra the traveling companion with Paul and Silas and on their journey to evangelize. And Acts 16 verse 3 says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and took him and circumcised him because the Jews who were in those places for they all knew that his father was Greek. Well, Paul didn't want Timothy's uncircumcision to prevent the Jews from listening. These Jews, it says, knew that Timothy's father was a Greek, and if not showing signs of respect for the law, Paul feared that they wouldn't receive them at all and wouldn't listen to them. Well, Paul wanted to remove any stumbling block that might prevent them from hearing their preaching. In another place where Paul became like the Jews and did anything, went to great lengths that they would hear his teaching and preaching. This is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul details the things that he had endured to labor as a missionary apostle. He lists that he received the lashes from the Jews five times. Paul willingly submitted himself to discipline in the synagogue, receiving 40 lashes minus one five times so that he could keep the door open for ministry to the Jews. What agony Paul went through so that the gospel would be made known among the Jews and those under the law. Paul says that he became like those without the law. That would be the Gentiles. When Paul was with the Gentiles, he became like them. He didn't insist upon practicing the law. In fact, he made it a point not to lest they think that they needed to follow the law for salvation. Paul learned who they were. He got to know them. He lived among them. He understood their way of life. Now, maybe we think of Paul's missionary journeys as numerous quick stops just so Paul could preach and leave. Surely he had some that were quick, 
that likely was when they knew of him or knew his ministry. In Acts 19, Paul spent two years in an area uh, ministering to the church in Ephesus. Acts 19, 8 and following. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The last group that Paul says he became like was the weak. Now, just before this, in chapter 8, Paul speaks of the weak as weak Christians. In our text today, Paul is talking about doing what he does to save some. I think it's most likely that Paul is here talking about a sociological category, weak, being those who are destitute and poor, the downtrodden and the defeated. Could he be talking about weak believers again here? Yes, and some think he is. And to be honest, I don't think it makes a huge difference in our application. Paul's motivation is the same either way. Faith in Christ motivated Paul to use his freedom in love both towards the Christian and towards the non-Christian. He wanted to make disciples. He wanted those who didn't know Christ to know Christ as their Lord, and he wanted all of them to grow in Christ-likeness in a progressive way. Paul says in verse 22, I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So what do we make of Paul's use of this little phrase, by all means? Does by all means mean that Paul would enter into sin so that he could preach? Well, this is an extreme question, but it must be dealt with. The answer is no. Surely not. This would absolutely be counterproductive to discipleship. Now, much could be said and has been written on Paul's ongoing understanding of the law after his conversion. In our text today, in verse 21, Paul says that he became like those outside the law, though he clarifies that he's not outside the law of God, but he's now under the law of Christ. He's no longer governed and given identity by the Mosaic ceremonial law, like he had been before his conversion. But now, Christ has come, and he was governed by this law of Christ in a new covenant era. So what is the law of Christ? Commentator Anthony Thistleton explains it this way. Christians stand under the direction of the gospel as that which witnesses to Christ in a broader and more comprehensive way. Now, Christians aren't free to suddenly do anything they want. Christians are free to adapt to all people in a way that doesn't lead to sin. This section of 1 Corinthians, Paul's addressing how Christians are to handle morally neutral matters that could cause some to fall into sin. He isn't giving the Corinthians license to sin. Well, Paul wants the Corinthians to use their freedom for the love of others, not the satisfaction of their desires. Now, Paul makes it clear that he wrestled with how to become like the audience he was seeking to preach the gospel to. He would bend over backwards to not hinder someone hearing the gospel 
and responding in faith and continuing in their journey of faith. Now, in contemporary Christianity today, a fancy word that's been used to describe what Paul writes about here is contextualization. Now, much has been said about this in the last probably decade or two. Some use the concept Paul details here, like the Corinthians were using it, to justify whatever free behavior they want. And this is not what Paul means. We need to contextualize the gospel because it earns us trust and gives us wisdom to minister to those around us. I've spent some time visiting with some friends in the past week that were involved in cross-cultural missions. I think it helps me and it helps us understand what this might look like in a, in a more black and white area. In more obvious situations, there's bigger gaps between our culture and another. And contextualization is likely more apparent. In Mexico, for instance, it was important to allow the use of Bibles that were familiar to the indigenous people, even if it meant using old translations or the inclusion of books outside of the canon. Now, other things of importance in assimilating into the culture were embracing food and song and affectionate greetings, furnishings inside the home that matched the area and the type of car you drove were important. Of course, how well you know and can speak the language are valuable. All these things were of vast importance to earn the trust to be accepted by the host people group. Now, one family I spoke with said that time spent listening and learning was a big deal. A native Christian to the area that they minister in said he observes the way that outsiders come in and treat people like projects. Like it's not about relationship and actually knowing and understanding. It's just a project. They come in quickly and they try to preach the message and leave. This person commented, in the West, we're all go, go, go. The West has all the watches, but we have all the time. Oh, capitalism might idolize efficiency in a way that some cultures might be put off by. We need to pay attention to that kind of stuff. In this setting, adapting to a lifestyle to be more available to listen, open to dinner at late in the evening, and feeding even unexpected visitors when they come by gains the trust of a people. Now, taking the time to do these things gives us wisdom also. Taking the time to get to know people that you're seeking to get the gospel to allows us to be surgical in our ministry of the word to them. Consider with me for a minute interventional radiology. Interventional radiology is fascinating discipline. In the last 10 years, it's really erupted loads of new technology and many life-saving procedures. There's many applications, but one that's life-saving that's done, that can be done is when someone is having a stroke. Now, there's different kinds of strokes. Very simply, there's, there's those when someone's hemorrhaging, they're bleeding, a blood vessel in their brain broke open. 
And there's occlusive strokes where a blood vessel is plugged. And in either one of these, blood isn't getting to where it needs to in the brain. And it can lead to severe disability and death. Now, after a diagnostic test is done, now think of this in our illustration as getting to know the culture or the people group and then the individuals that God has put in your life and your ministry. After this diagnostic is done and it says it's a bleed or it's a plugged uh, blood vessel, an interventional radiologist can put a little tube inside a blood vessel and fish it right up to where the blockage is at, where the blood vessel is broken open. And they can release a clot-busting medicine to, to dissolve it, to fix the brain. Or they can put a coil in it and stop the bleeding where the blood vessel is broken open. Getting to know the people that we live around and that we work with helps us know exactly where we need to minister the word to them. And we must labor in this. We must labor to know the verses in the Bible and the truths that they don't understand that we could share with them, that we could sow into their lives. Now, Paul's faithful evangelism exemplifies getting to know and adapting to the people around you so that you can wisely minister the gospel into their lives. Now, as we continue to look at our text for today, Paul shows us what motivates faithful evangelism. Evangelism is motivated by the saving work of the gospel in others' lives. Paul says in verse 19 that though he's free from all, he's made himself a slave to all that he might win more. Paul's purpose in setting aside his Christian freedom and neutral things is so that he could position himself to win more to Christ. And Paul became all things to all people so that he might save some doing it all for the sake of the gospel. Now, Paul clearly understands the significance of the gospel message in others' salvation when he lays down his freedom so that others might be saved. Evangelism is also motivated by the saving work of the gospel in our own lives. Verse 23, Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And in verse 27, Paul writes, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, Paul connects the evangelism of others to his own salvation. Though what does he mean? A simple take on this that is beneficial to understand is that the joy and salvation leads to an outpouring from our hearts about the glories of Christ's saving work. Like the psalmist who cries out, you make known to me the path of life and in your presence there's fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Paul goes further. Paul is saying that if he says he's a Christian but he doesn't care about his neighbor's salvation, he probably isn't a Christian. In the book, The Reformed Pastor, the Puritan pastor evangelist Richard Baxter writes about evangelism being an expression 
of Christian love. In the book, The Quest for Godliness, J.I. Packer writes about Baxter's proposition. Packer writes, It's often said, quite fairly, that any Christian who seriously thinks that without Christ men are lost and who seriously loves his neighbor will not be able to rest for the thought of that all around him people are going to hell, but will lay himself out unstintingly to convert others as his prime task in life. And any Christian who fails to behave this way undermines the credibility of his faith. For if he cannot himself take it seriously as setting priorities for his own living, why should anyone else take it seriously as a source of guidance for their life? Remember the question in our title, what's our freedom for? Our freedom is to make the gospel known. To proclaim the universe-altering truth that God sent his son Jesus to restore us to right relationship to him by sacrificing his son on our behalf. Paul is thinking that his own salvation is evident and connected to the the evangelism of others. Paul isn't teaching some twisted form of works-based salvation through evangelism to others, through that work that he'll be saved. Paul isn't saying that if others aren't saved through his evangelist efforts, then he isn't saved. Paul is teaching that one of the sure marks of salvation is a Christian's motivation to evangelize other people. Some believe that Paul isn't talking about his salvation when he uses, um, when he talks of disqualification in verse 27. Instead, they say Paul's addressing that believers' works will be judged before Christ one day. I'm not compelled by this argument because the word that Paul uses for disqualification is the same word that he uses elsewhere in the New Testament when speaking of those who are disqualified from salvation itself. Now, Paul's point here isn't that good works and bad works and believers' lives will be judged, and I mean that here, may come up other places in scripture. Paul is saying, I evangelized lest my faith is found to be a sham. Alex Strauch says of evangelism in churches, evangelize or fossilize. And I think this applies both corporately to churches that want to grow and not fade away as the age of the congregation advances in years, but also to individual Christians. A mark of the Holy Spirit in a Christian is care for the eternal destination of the souls of others. In Titus 1.16, Paul writes of false teachers in Crete. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, unfit for any good work. I think this is a little bit of Paul's notion here. Paul's motivated by the eschatological hope that he has of his own salvation. And he longs for the day when he'll receive his imperishable wreath. And he works hard towards pointing people towards Christ. Now there's a tension in here and in other places in scripture between assurance of salvation and warning to believers. What do I mean by that? In chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul wrote, 
as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has encouraged them that God's work in them will not suddenly stop. He tells them that Christ will sustain them to the end, and they will be guiltless in the day of the Lord. But in our text today, he connects his own work and fervency in evangelism to the salvation being proven, lest he be disqualified after he preaches. Tom Schreiner adds clarity to this. As believers respond to warnings, their assurance is not dampened, but deepened. The need to run the race to the end did not fill Paul with doubt or shake his confidence. Instead, the admonition to run the race stimulated him to continue in the faith, and his perseverance bolstered his confidence that he would receive final salvation. Now, the warning and admonition to run bolsters and strengthens and deepens our faith in the midst of trouble. Now, many commentators see this part of our text as a transition point to chapter 10, where Paul goes even further in historical illustration with how severe it is when there's no fruit of salvation. It ends in judgment from God. Now, Paul is encouraging a church in Corinth that's using freedom wrongly, and he wants them to grasp the severity and the importance of the situation. Our text culminates as Paul shares an illustration about the fervency of faithful contextualization in evangelism. This will guide our understanding of our faithful evangelism. Verse 24 and following. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Well, Paul uses athletic imagery to talk about the fervency that he has labored with to become all things to all people. Well, the Corinthian Peninsula was home to the Isthmian, sorry about that, the Isthmian Games every other year. It was the second biggest athletic stage next to the Olympics. This illustration surely stuck out to the Corinthians. Paul says that he has been disciplined and self-controlled, not aimless. Paul says that he's been focused, not distracted. Now, I'm a pretty big sports fan. I don't just mean that I'm big. I mean, I like a lot of sports. I've always liked sports and participated in sports. At this phase of my life, I like to call myself a yard game enthusiast. I know that many of you are too. About the only thing that's been interesting to watch in the last few weeks has been the NFL draft in The Last Dance, the documentary on the Chicago Bulls of the 1990s. Well, let's take a minute to think about these two things. The NFL draft is an event where teams select college players that they'll have exclusive rights to negotiate a contract with. Tremendous focus 
and discipline is required of an athlete that's preparing for the draft. The college football players usually either graduate early or they drop out of school so that the months leading up to the draft, they can focus solely on improving their skill. To be successful, it requires an unhindered focus on improving. And even with focus and discipline, it's extremely hard to do well in the draft. Athletes change their diet to help build lean muscle mass or gain or lose weight, depending on which they need. They have multiple workouts a day. We're not talking just one. They're talking multiple workouts a day focused on strength training, speed improvement. Even the minute differences in the form of a runner can take hundreds or tenths of seconds off of a 40-yard dash, meaning the difference between not being drafted and millions of dollars. Is this how we approach winning people to Christ? Paul is saying that this is how our approach should be when it comes to winning people to Jesus. Think of the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s as chronicled in the Last Dance documentary I mentioned. Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, Horace Grant, Steve Kerr, Luke Longley, all led and coached by Phil Jackson, a basketball mastermind who took these athletes and got them to focus on one thing, winning. Jackson's genius was getting the talent on the team to work together. When sometimes personalities clashed and he helped them deal appropriately with distraction by drawing their attention back to the goal of working together to win the prize. This is what our disciplined and focused efforts should look like in evangelism. Our faithful evangelism should look like Paul's. It should look like a disciplined and self-controlled athlete competing for a championship. And what does faithful evangelism look like at Orchard? And what does it look like in each of our lives? Craig Blomberg says about this passage, the sacrifices that athletes make in training call to mind as well that Paul's evangelistic principle should permeate all of our lives and order all of our priorities. I'm totally aware that this is extremely intimidating for most people. Most people either feel loads of shame about evangelism, if you're a Christian, or apathy. And, and you're thinking now, Scrabeck is telling us that the Apostle Paul is telling us that if we're not doing it, we might not be Christians. Into this place in your heart, brothers and sisters, let God's word come and encourage you, convict you maybe, but let it rush over your soul and let it bring transformation and life to you. We need to think about evangelism biblically. There's a temptation to think about evangelism very narrowly with some unbiblical presupposition. And I think that's a big contributor to why we often feel discouraged about it. So what does failure in evangelism look like? Is it when we see no conversion by our labors? No. 
We cannot make someone believe. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. He uses us in the process. This isn't some kind of genie in the bottle thing. There's no magic potion to just make someone believe. But we know that it includes knowledge of sin and Christ crucified. And so we proclaim that. Now, as failure, when we lack eloquence or polish in our attempt at giving the answer for the hope that's in us to someone that we know, no, it isn't about your eloquence or perfection in the process. Is failure in evangelism when you're nervous about it? No. Our feelings about evangelism aren't what make us called to it. And our feelings about it aren't what God requires to use our proclamation of the gospel for his glory and his purposes. He uses evangelism in our lives so that we would trust him. And he uses it in others' lives as the gospel is made known. We fail at evangelism when we don't do it, when we don't show up. So that would be if we get the message wrong and we preach a different gospel, or if we don't do it at all and we do nothing. So faithful evangelism looks like doing something. What is something that we're called to? Well, think of Paul's example. Back in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters, we see that Paul's ministry of the gospel was both public in preaching and proclamation and also private in people's homes and shoulder to shoulder next to them, working and doing life with them. He didn't just preach and leave. He lived with people. He was among them. Now, not in every case. He wrote letters in the New Testament to churches he'd never been to. But he made it clear numerous times that his earnest desire was to be there with them. Now, for some, doing something might be getting to know a non-Christian and actually living shoulder to shoulder with them in your neighborhoods or workplace. If you don't know a person who isn't a Christian, get to know one. They put their pants on one leg at a time, just like you you'll find they probably struggle with similar things to you. But they probably struggle more with having answers for life's big questions because they don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have probably much knowledge of God's word that gives us wisdom for life and joy and eternal security. Get to know them for the purpose of relationship. Don't leave them if they don't want to come to church with you the first time you ask them. Humbly put yourself in a place in their life to serve them and love them and learn about them. So when that moment comes that the Holy Spirit has prepared their heart to hear the gospel, you're there and you're ready. Now the other side of the spectrum with relationships with non-believers is that we have no intent to talk with them about the hope that we have. We're content that they'll perish eternally and we never take the time to pray for them. And to find a way to connect with them about how much God loves them and wants to be in relationship with them. And don't underestimate the ability of your humble godliness at drawing attention from a non-believer about why you have hope. One thing that they will notice is when you're bad at your job, when you've got a terrible attitude, when you're self-centered, 
Now, when we do mess up, we need to be humble. We need to ask for their forgiveness when appropriate. We need to admit our weakness. We need to own our mess-ups. So what else is doing something? Well, I think we can get creative and use the gifts that God's given us in evangelism. Now, some of you are like, whew, I'm not an evangelist. I'm not gifted in that, so I'm out. That's good. This is finally my out. Now, some are surely probably better equipped to do evangelism than others, but I don't think it's necessarily even a gift. I think each person has personality and talent that lends itself well to certain pieces that are needed in evangelism. This is where the body of Christ comes in. We can support each other in this in the body and work together to get better at this together. In fact, no matter how good or bad you are at this, we must do this together. For instance, I love discussion of deep philosophical and theological things, long walks on the beach. I love talking about worldview stuff. Not everyone does or has the background that I do in the training to, to get into that stuff. My, my wife doesn't. I don't mean that as a slight at all. My, my wife is really good at hospitality and getting to know people and creating an environment where people are comfortable physically and socially. Now, some of you are prayer warriors. You should be praying for the salvation of those people in our church, and there's many that are meeting with people in Bible studies and having evangelistic conversations with people they know. Now, there's a wonderful book with a descriptive title that will give us some idea of something that we can do. The book is titled, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's by Rosaria Butterfield. Hospitality is a great way to love and get to know non-believers. If you like to read, pick up a book on evangelism. There's a lot of good ones that I could commend to you. I'd love to borrow them to you or buy them for you. Um, They're going to help you and give you ideas to focus and to have discipline rather than to be aimless and distracted. Now, if you leave with one practical thing today to grow in your evangelism and to help our church grow in this, it's this. Pray. Pray and put yourself in a non-believer's life and keep praying and keep asking for wisdom and boldness and love. Now, J.I. Packer says, says that the evangelist's role is like that of a midwife. He writes again in The Quest for Godliness, the work of effectual calling will proceed as fast as God's will, but no faster. And the Christian's role is accordingly that of a midwife whose task is to see what is happening and give appropriate help at each stage, but who cannot foretell, let alone prearrange, how rapid the birth process will be. We put ourselves in a position in people's lives so that we can be surgical in our precision with God's word into their lives. This will give us wisdom to minister as effectively as possible. And we need to have discipline and focus to prayerfully think about what our role is in our neighbor's salvation. Now think about a new midwife and an experienced midwife. Certainly, they get better. Experience makes it probably both easier and, and more effective. We've got to start somewhere. 
Now, G.K. Chesterton has said that it isn't that Christianity has been tried and found wanting, but that it's been tried and found hard. Couldn't we say the same thing about evangelism? It's definitely hard. Rico Tice, in his book, Honest Evangelism, says that there's a pain line for every one of us. It's different places for everybody. Evangelism doesn't happen without some dying to self, which is painful. The struggle that I have with idolatry instead of obedience to evangelize is that I subtly live running a race that looks more like the American Declaration of Independence than I do living in light of my dependence upon God. Listen to this second paragraph of the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think we've perhaps co-opted our calling as Christians with this humanistic and indulgent and self-centered vision for our lives. Now, I'm not saying this is the wrong vision for our governing body. I think that's debatable. I think it's fun to talk about. You can even argue that natural law under God's sovereignty reveals this to be a good endeavor by our government. What I am saying, this isn't the call of the Christian. It may be the call of our governing body here in the United States, and we can support that as citizens, but it isn't Christ's call to the sinner. When we co-opt our biblical call as Christ followers, that is, as his slaves, with this American ideal, we become an American syncretistic religion, not a biblical assembly of followers of Jesus Christ. So what race are you running? Is it a race towards life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness? Or have you made yourself a slave to Jesus and to your neighbor so that you might win as many as possible? And like Paul says, we do it all for the sake of the gospel. If you're listening to this and you have questions and want to know more about life with Christ, please reach out to someone who knows Christ. You can reach out to any of our pastors here at Orchard. You can talk with anyone from our church. And church, let us seek the Lord in this. Let his word shape our hearts and our actions in this. And let's together, let's use our freedom for our love of neighbor so that we might win more of them. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we are thankful as always. We come to your word with humble hearts, needing it to guide us and instruct us. Lord, I pray for courage in my own heart. This is, this is a challenging word to me this morning. I pray for courage for my own heart. I pray for courage for orchard, Lord, that we would be bold, that we would find our pain line, that we would, that we would in, in faith in you and trust in you and love for our neighbor, we would become all things to our neighbors to our coworkers, to those who don't know Jesus. That you would save some through that. We pray for your spirit's help in this. Continue to guide us and direct us for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.